Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. But George always had these characters and always had these big dreams and these ambitions, if you would, that would not have found a home in other colonies. That's Bob Davis. Professor Davis has spent his career studying the history of Georgia from its earliest beginnings to the modern age. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by the University of Pennsylvania Press, publisher of the new book, William Livingston's American Revolution, by James J. Gigantino. Available now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the revolution in a big way, but in many ways writ very small. So in typical historian fashion, I've confused everyone. What am I talking about? Today, our guest, and we are very excited about this, is Georgia historian Bob Davis. Bob Davis has spent his career studying the state of Georgia, and it's a lengthy and uh, prestigious career as well, might I add, uh, and the many sort of unique qualities about Georgia that made it so important during the 18th century and during the American Revolution. Georgia will be the youngest of the 13 American colonies when the American Revolution breaks out. And as all of you know who may live in a former colony on the eastern seaboard, these histories are very long and very ranging, even before the American Revolution begins. Bob Davis tonight will talk about how Georgia came to revolution. And it won't be an easy journey. Georgia, like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, or Virginia, or Massachusetts, you name it, was its own entity, with its own unique history, with its own problems and its own political divisions, its own politicians and its own aspiring stars. Some of them were patriots. In Georgia's case, many will be loyalists. But Bob will tonight talk about what some of those moving parts really look like and how Georgia will ultimately find its way into the American Revolution. He will convince you that, even though it comes in uh, fairly late, as we'll talk about, Georgia will not send delegates to the First Continental Congress. Uh, It comes in in its own way, in a very meaningful way. So, when we listen to Bob Davis tonight, think about where you live, think about the long histories and the sort of complicated political nuances all around you, um, and understand that, in many ways, the American Revolution, you know, is that story times 13. Uh, Each colony finding its own way to the fight for its own reasons. We also talk about Bob's new article, which you can find at the journal The American Revolution, free as always, www.allthingsliberty.com, in which she highlights the lives and the successes and, uh, somewhat hilariously sometimes, the failures of Georgia's 
founding fathers. We'll talk at length about a gentleman named Button Gwinnett tonight. Um, when you hear these stories, and I'd encourage you to read the article because, of course, there is far more detail there. Uh, when you hear these stories, you can't help but be reminded that our idea or notion of the quote-unquote founding fathers is largely a mythological one. I mean, these are not people who came down from the heavens. These are not people who were born for the destiny of creating the world's first modern republic. These were politicians, doctors, lawyers, bankers, businessmen, you name it, coming together with their own interests, their own personal and regional interests at heart, uh, working together to ultimately do something pretty amazing. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Bob Davis. Bob Davis, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Tell us about your background. Well, uh, I first became interested in the American Revolution when I was in college. I was Georgia's first history intern, and uh, I was asked to write a report for the state on the possibility of making Kettle Creek Battlefield a state park. I had never heard of Kettle Creek. I had to look it up. But uh, anyway, I've never stopped researching since. And my primary interest is Georgia, but also the American Revolution, because so little has been done on it, and it's so intriguing. I have uh, 125 articles in professional journals and something like 1,250 publications. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, to this particular topic, uh, back during the bicentennial of the Revolution, there was a symposium held about Georgia's signers of the Declaration of Independence, and I was not invited. <laughs> and that sort of offended me in a way, but I hadn't done anything on the subject. But I did persuade the person who put it together to publish a book of the essays, and uh, although the book, and I'm given credit for that in the book, but unfortunately the sources were not given. But when I read the essays, that raised questions with me, particularly about Button Gwinnett, that have stayed with me ever since. And I never stop researching anything. And so the final accumulation of all of this was an article, is the article that's in the Journal of the American Revolution. I was invited uh, a couple of years back to give a talk on all five Georgia signers at the new... Um, Museum of the American Revolution at Yorktown, Virginia, which is a great place to see and visit. And uh, anyway, I had to put it all together for that talk, and I've been putting it all together ever since, accumulating in the article that's going to appear in uh, the Journal of the American Revolution. Talk a little bit about the state of Georgia before the Revolution. Well, Georgia was the last of the original 13 colonies. Uh, it was founded in 1733, and unlike the other colonies, which were set up as some sort of business or financial venture, Georgia was created by a nonprofit board of trustees. And although the population of Georgia until the, se the 1784 to 1796 was relatively small, Georgia played a major role in the British Empire and the colonial world. Uh, 
1752, the trustees gave up the colony of Georgia, and in 1754, it became a royal colony under uh, its first governor. Its first governor, but it was a wild frontier that held a strategic location uh, until the end of the Seven Years' War, when Spain gave up East Florida. Georgia was the border between South Carolina, the other colonies, and Spain. In fact, Georgia fought its own little war with Spain in the 1740s under General Oglethorpe. Uh, after the American Revolution begins, East Florida remains a British colony, and so it becomes a threat to Georgia. Georgia had at least three invasions of East Florida, all of which were pretty much a failure. Uh, Georgia was very much divided because so many of its people were newcomers, many of them from Europe. Uh, the, co the King of England had always been generous with Georgia, uh, providing land and protection from the Indians. Uh, it's been said that Georgia's last royal governor, Sir James Wright, was the most popular colonial governor of them all. And he boasted that he managed to keep Georgia out of the American Revolution for an extra for an extra year after the other colonies had revolted just by his presence and personality. In 1774, thousands of Georgians, just about all the male population that mattered in Georgia, signed petitions to uh, Governor Wright, denouncing the Boston Tea Party and uh, the resistance to closing Boston Harbor, and uh, denouncing the um denouncing uh the growing revolution in the colony of Georgia and these petitions were signed by such later important people as John Dooley, Elijah Clark, um William Few and others who will be later converted to the American cause. One thing that's always stood out to me is that during the first Continental Congress uh, you'll only see 12 colonies send delegates. Georgia is noticeably absent. Could you explain why? Uh, yes. Uh, well, it was very complicated. Even among the people who supported the revolution, uh, there was conflict about just how far they should go. There were many people in Georgia who felt that the king was wrong, the Americans had been injured, but they were a long way from rebellion and they were they were still in the stage of sending petitions to the king and matters like that. Uh, also, of the 13 colonies, Georgia had the largest percentage of its people who supported the king, even a higher percentage than New York did, or Pennsylvania, which is, uh, and this would be pretty much to the end of the American Revolution. Uh, Georgia did not send delegates because Georgia's political machine, such as it was, was busy in the backcountry converting people to the revolution using persuasion, promotion, uh, and eventually even persecution where it was necessary uh, to win supporters for their cause. So Georgia at that time had not, as far as the First Continental Congress is concerned, Georgia's rebels had not even adopted the Continental Association, which would have uh, shut Georgia off from trading with Great Britain. The other 12 colonies had adopted this. Georgia had not. Georgia was even a pariah to neighboring South Carolina because it did not. Georgia will not join the Continental Association until a British fleet arrives at Savannah and seizes several rice ships that were there. 
and uh, threatened uh, violence against Savannah if uh, resistance took place. That was sort of the final line in the sand, and Georgia joins the revolution from that time on. But that's after the First Continental Congress has met. A Georgian was there, but he only represented one parish in Georgia, and that was a parish that was largely settled by New Englanders who had friends and family in Boston and, of course, naturally supported the revolution. Your article does a really wonderful job of laying out, I guess, the who's who of Georgia's founding generation. Who do you think is the most interesting? I found all of them to be interesting, but uh, Button Gwinnett just has to be, just <laughs> Button Gwinnett just is out there in a the league all to himself. And I have a particular fondness for him because in all of the research I've done on Georgia, I've done numerous scoundrels over time. Uh, or characters, if you want to be a bit more generous about it. Uh, people who've been financially, they've been in financial ventures that always ended up badly for them. They've dabbled in politics because they succeeded there when uh, they couldn't make it anywhere else. Uh, but then that gives them kind of a chip on their shoulder. Um, Samuel Adams and Thomas Paine being examples of that from other states. But Button Gwinnett is such a character because there's so little relatively known about him. And when you do find information on him, it's always some wild adventure somewhere um, that, as they say, always ended badly for him. Tell us a little bit about Button Gwinnett. Yes, he was born in England uh, to a middle-class vicar's family. Uh, he was a uh, school a member of the local school board at one time. Uh, he doesn't have a great deal of success in England, and so he begins these wild adventures all up and down the Atlantic, Nova Scotia, uh, Georgia, the Bahamas, uh, all these, I mean, the Caribbean, all these different places. All of them he seems to leave a trail of creditors and debts behind him. He comes to Georgia for his next big scheme, which where somehow he acquires um, a large island in Georgia where he has all these big plans of becoming a successful planter. But the plans all come to nothing. And the only thing he succeeds in in Georgia is politics. Uh, I think, again, part of it has to do with a chip on his shoulder. He resents the upper class because the upper class is successful and he's not been... Uh, with that, he forms Georgia's first political party, which is made up of those people who are not in the aristocracy, not in the leadership position, but they would like to be. These are the people who would like to be the aristocracy on the frontier and on the coast. And uh, this becomes a very powerful political machine. Um, but again, like everything else, this blows up in Gwinnett's face. After he signs the Declaration of Independence, he returns to Georgia, where the one man who is keeping Georgia rebels from completely falling apart, and he's in my article, Archibald Bullock, mysteriously dies. Uh, there's even the story that Bullock was poisoned. When Bullock dies, uh, Bullock was Georgia's first state governor. After Bullock dies, Gwinnett fills a job temporarily until the legislature can meet. Gwinnett organizes an invasion of East Florida that's a complete disaster. 
and when he believes he when he believes that the Georgia's legislature is going to elect him governor because he's been already filling the post. He was responsible for Georgia's first state uh, constitution. He signed the Declaration of Independence. Instead, the Georgia legislature, which was led by his own, the party that he was created, that he had created, the party votes John Adam Troitland in as governor instead. And to add insult to injury, they dated his commission to governor back to the uh, beginning of Georgia's state constitution. In other words, they're trying to say that Button Gwinnett was never governor at all, even acting. And this results in uh, uh, Button Gwinnett's political opponent, General Lachlan McIntosh, laughing and making fun of what happened to Gwinnett. Gwinnett challenged McIntosh to a duel. McIntosh was wounded, and Gwinnett was mortally wounded. Um, Gwinnett was one of these people, the more he tried, the harder he failed. And for that reason, by the way, uh, his signature is the rarest signature on the Declaration of Independence. In your article, you talk about some New Englanders who make their way south and become instrumental in Georgia politics. Uh, who were they, and why did they move there? Uh, well, there's really very, very little known about these communities. Uh, they come from largely from Connecticut and Massachusetts, and Georgia will always have a strong element from Connecticut in that area. Uh, there's a few states in this country, Connecticut, New Jersey, North Carolina, coming immediately to mind, where there's entirely too many people and not enough land and not enough opportunities. And those states are always bleeding people to other colonies. I think in the case of colonial Georgia, it well, what I, what I think and what I know happened is that these people first settled in Dorchester in South Carolina. And then from Dorchester, they move into Georgia, where there's always plenty of opportunities and land, etc. cetera. Uh, but why did they go to Dorchester at all? And I think it was just South Carolina's share of Connecticut Yankees and New Englanders looking for some place where the ground isn't nearly as rocky and uh, the opportunities are greater. But they established the settlements of Sunbury and Midway, in colonial Georgia, both of which are now dead towns. Um, But it's like that old New England joke, what do we grow in our small farms and fields? We grow rocks. We hear a lot of discussion in the news today about border states, and we don't often think of Georgia as a border state, but for the first 20 or 30 years after the Revolution, it certainly was. Could you talk a little bit about that? All right. First off, when we think of people migrating, we think of people moving from the eastern colonies or the eastern states west. But before the American Revolution, the Great Migration was south. Uh, People from New Jersey were moving south, Connecticut south, and of course North Carolina were moving south. And uh, Georgia was the southernmost of the British colonies. You couldn't really go further south without being in Spanish territory. After British East Florida was developed, uh, of course, you could move further south there, but East Florida always had problems. It could never feed itself. It was uh, it was not highly regarded. But it's in Georgia and North Carolina and Virginia that the Great American Migration turns from being south to going west. Uh, 
Now, Georgia had particular problems. Uh, Georgia was up against the Creek Indian Confederacy to the west and the Cherokee Indian Confederacy to the north. In the years immediately after the American Revolution, an estimated 2,000 Georgians died in Indian attacks along its frontier. When East Florida returned to Spain, Georgia will fight three wars before 1820 with the Spanish border. And the problem were slaves. Slaves. Georgia was one of the reasons Georgia was originally founded was to keep slaves from escaping through Georgia to Spanish Florida. And then after the American Revolution, that becomes a problem not just for South Carolina, but for Georgia. And while it's not politically correct to talk about it now, the thing of it is Georgia's economic future depended on slavery. Upland slavery, coastal slavery, slavery in all of its forms. And uh, that future was not going to happen if the slaves escaped to freedom in Spanish Florida. And this all comes to an end in 1819 when Andrew Jackson, a uh, veteran of South Carolina and the American Revolution, finally takes East Florida from Spain and it passes to the United States. In your opinion, what should Georgia's legacy be for its service in the American Revolution? Uh, that's an excellent question, and this is uh, this is complicated in its simplicity, if you would. But Georgia, and I'm not saying this just out of my heart, but because the facts actually stand up for it. But Georgia has a very, has, has a truly unique history, and it is a history founded in liberalism. It is uh, history founded in opportunity, and this history, when one form or fashion, will extend with Georgia all the way up to the 1940s. But I think it is part of a legacy that goes back to John Wesley and George Whitfield, General Oglethorpe and the trustees in the 1730s and the 1740s. But this created a, a different kind of frontier environment in Georgia than what you found in other colonies that were older and more established. But Georgia always had these characters and always had these big dreams and these ambitions, if you would, that would not have found a home in other colonies. And that's sort of the history of America, if you would, in miniature. And then Georgia's contribution to the American Revolution, it's sort of the same thing. Georgia comes to the American Revolution, but we don't come at following anybody. We come to our own revolution in our own way. Some many Georgians, they're going to fight for a counter-revolution to keep to keep Georgia and America for the king. Others believe that the king and the British Empire is holding Georgia back. And that's why Georgia became so divisive and why we had such a high percentage of resistance to the revolution than other states did. But when the war is over and Georgia has all this land and Georgia has all of this opportunity, Georgia grew faster between 1783 and 1794 than it would grow at any time in its history. All these people were coming south to, if you would, invest in Georgia, to build their futures in Georgia. Now, often that, sometimes that didn't work out too well. Sometimes that ended badly. Other times they built they built the state of Georgia that would become that it would become. The motto for the Georgia that came after the American Revolution, the Empire State of the South. 
Now, some people say that's Georgia trying to imitate New York, which was also a state that boomed after the American Revolution. I don't think so. I think it I think it has more truth to it. I think it's more like what George Washington meant when he talked about the United States as an empire. It's not it's an empire of opportunities. It's an opportunity uh, of opportunities. For some people like Button Quinette and George Walton, it's not going to work out so well, but for other people it will be spectacular. But if you would, it's the it will be it Georgia was the first great American West. Um, and all that the American West was, including some of its characters, all comes out of Georgia. What are you working on next? Well, we could spend the rest of the evening with that, and it frustrates me so much because I work and work on everything, and I don't ever seem to get anything done, which a lot of people would disagree with me on. But right now, I'm working on a couple of things that are probably going to be future articles in the Journal of the American Revolution. I found a mysterious man named Captain Daniel Dotty, D-O-T-Y, in the American Revolution, and he claimed to have been responsible for the Southern strategy that extended the war for two years and made it such a bloodbath, but yet almost nobody has ever heard of him. I've got just scraps of records about him. And I'm also doing an article on how British uh, Captain Charles Grenville Montague came to Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, recruited American prisoners of war to fight for the king in Jamaica. Actually, it was originally going to be for an invasion of Nicaragua, and instead they end up defending Jamaica. And ironically, when the American Revolution is over, these Americans who he saved, Montague saved from the prison ships in Charleston, they didn't want to go back to America. They wanted to stay with him. So he takes them to Nova Scotia with him. Uh, where he died, unfortunately, shortly afterwards. And uh, there's been a big deal here lately. The two national genealogy programs that you see on TV, each of them are doing a segment on a celebrity who descends from a loyalist or Tory leader who was hanged for being at the Battle of Kettle Creek. So I've done an article on that like I've done on Montague, but I want to do a new article on it for the Journal of the American Revolution about the men who were the loyalists who were executed for um, having helped lead the great rebellion that ended in the Battle of Kettle Creek, Georgia. Bob Davis, thank you for joining us. You're most welcome anytime. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.